Like I said, today's message on judges is going to be, um, frankly, it's entertaining. Um, before we get there, though, I want to make a recommendation. Um, as a part of some of the reading that I was doing this past week, I came across um, a book by Wesley Hill, who's an author I would encourage you to read. He's written some very important stuff on a number of different issues. Uh, when Wesley writes something, I usually try to read it. Um, and he wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer, so I ordered it this past week. And when it came in, after paying $14.99 for it, um, I found this little book. And I said to Dawn, I'm not sure this is a $14.99 book. And then I opened it up, and inside there's like lots of blank pages or pages with pictures. And like, that's, that doesn't count as a page. I'm sorry. And I paid $14.99 for this. Um, you should pay $14.99 for this. Um, you can get it uh, through Christian Book Distributors um, for $11.99. You probably have to pay the shipping through Amazon. It's $15.99. Um, th- there's an excerpt from it out on the Connection Center um, that is about praying the Lord's Prayer uh, related to Rembrandt's painting, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Dawn and I have had that painting in our house for many years, and it is a, uh, a really stirring painting. And so... Um, it, Read the, the selection by Wesley Hill out at the Connection Center on praying and um, with Rembrandt and see if it might uh, capture something for you. I, it's, a, it's a book worth reading. A number of years ago, I did a series on the Lord's Prayer, kind of like what Wesley does in this, um, in this book, although he does it way better. Just connecting the Lord's Prayer is something that you can actually pray but also something you can use as a guide for your prayers. It has all of the right stuff uh, to pray, and so I would really highly recommend it. Um, Wesley's also got an article I put out there on having um, hardback Bibles and, and, and why you should have a Bible. And I'm not kind of making this some directive at the church, everybody start bringing your Bibles, although I would love to have people bringing their Bibles. I've gotten used to that people pull their phone up when I start preaching. Um, at first, I was just like, they're doing Facebook in the message? Um, you still may be doing that. I just don't think it anymore. I think you're probably looking at your, your app. Um, but there's something really healthy about having a Bible uh, that you carry around, and so I want to encourage you to read that one. And then there's another article that I put out there a number of times. It's an old, old article by Francis Schaeffer. It's actually a message of his um, on doing the Lord's work in the world's way and, and how we need to make sure we use um, the ways of the Lord to do his work. And and that raises a little bit of the issue that's going on in this passage today. Um, Ehud is a left-handed judge, and there's a lot of debate as to whether, you know, whether he's doing things the way God wants him to do it. I'll get into that more. Um, but first of all, I want to address this issue of him highlighted as a left-handed judge. I don't know how much you have um, done on thinking about handedness, uh, I mean, I have a degree in counseling in addition to my seminary stuff um, and did a little bit of study on that. But probably the biggest thing was when Jordan, our oldest, was in kindergarten, the teacher called us in early, early on, and she said, I need you to watch this. And so she sat Jordan down and said, write something. And so he wrote, and it was like this, which is a little bit weird. I don't know if you know that, but... He could write either way. He literally wrote smoothly and switched hands halfway through. And she said, listen, that, it's okay, um, but he's going to have to choose which 
way he goes. He, he's going to have to choose right-handed or left-handed, and we're going to kind of make a decision and let him stick with it. Well, all of his friends were writing right-handed, and he, he learned how to write right-handed. Turns out the kid's totally ambidextrous. I mean, he, he's not just a switch hitter. He, he was a switch hitter in baseball, but he could play with a glove on either hand. He, he learned how to write right-handed, and through his whole school year career, wrote right-handed. Um, the break, Christmas break of his 10th grade year, he just came home and said, I'm going to learn how to write left-handed. And over Christmas break, he did, started writing left-handed. Very ambidextrous. Um, handedness is a really interesting thing because it, it's connected to our brains, okay? Um, I don't know how much you know about this, but the, the left-hand side of your brain um, controls your right hand, actually. If you're left-brained, most people left-brained are going to be right-handed. And the left cortex of your brain is much more the logical center the analytical center of your brain. The way I remember that is left is logical, okay? Um, the right hemisphere of your brain controls the more creative, the more artistic things in your brain, okay? Now, it doesn't mean that all, there's a bunch of people looking at each other going, this explains so much. Um, Aubrey, um, I see him looking back there. Um, but but it, 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 it's not one-for-one correspondence that if you're right brain, you're going to be left-handed, but, but there are some orientations there, and we, we tend to think differently. If you are a left brain person, right brain artistic people probably confuse you. And if you are a right brain person, artistic, creative, you probably feel like you don't fit. Now, a lot of those right brain people are left-handed. Um, and, and so it's, it's a really interesting dynamic that goes on. Um, some statistics uh, I, I would share with you. Um, left-handedness has increased from 4% in 1930 in the U.S. to 12% in 1975. That's probably not because more people are left-handed. It's just it's more acceptable. Um, Until the 1930s and kind of growing there, and in many places of the world, left-handedness is looked on um, with suspicion. In some parts of the world, there's hygienic reasons for that, that if you're left-handed, it there's some hygiene issues that go with it. I'm not going to explain it. Um, but, but, but left-handedness is seen negatively. But in the U.S., it's been more and more acceptable until about 1974. And we've kind of plateaued between 12 and 14% of the population is left-handed. In fact, how many of you um, are left-handed? If you're left-handed, raise your hand. Okay, good. I'm keeping a record of that. Um, I asked last week, I asked Preston Palmer, who runs Palmer Music, I said, what do you do with left-handed people? And he said, I consider them second-class citizens. Um, But then he quickly said, the problem is musical instruments, remember the creative artistic side is the right-hand side people, and they're often left-handed, but musical instruments are all made for right-handers. And there's there's something, our whole world, musical instruments are right-handed. Our whole world is right-handed. The illustration that I can give a, a few of them, one, um, a, a vending machine is made for right-handers. You take your money, you put it in right up here, right? You, you put your money in here. It's all, everything happens on the right-hand side. If you're a lefty, you have to go like this, okay? There's a lot of other things that the world is made for right-handers. Um, a skill saw, Okay made for your right hand. The weight is over here. This thing is perfectly balanced for my right hand, and the blade is over here, so it's away from me. If you have to use this saw this way, you're on the blade side. This is not only inconvenient, this is dangerous. 
we live in a right-handed world. And sociologists have kind of wondered the impact of that. Here's just some statistics. Um, 30% of prison population is left-handed. How many left-handers do we have, by the way? (laughs) Okay. But 17% of our U.S. presidents are lefties as well, a much higher percentage than is in the general population. In fact, um, high-achieving professions are dominated by left-handers. So basically, sociologists, there's not a one-to-one correspondence, but it basically goes something like this. If you're left-handed, you live in a right-handed world, so you either learn to overcome and you're an overachiever, or you learn to break the rules and you're a criminal. So you're either going to be president or in prison. There's your options. Raise your hand again if you're left-handed. In our story... Our hero, Ehud, is left-handed. Now, it's an interesting thing because he's said to be left-handed, but he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin means son of the right hand. He's a lefty from the right-handed tribe. This is kind of an irony that's being raised here. Left-handedness, and interestingly, the word literally means restricted in the right hand. He's, it's their phrase for left-handed, but it means he's bound in the right hand. A couple of things could be going on here. Um, this may be an idiom for just left-handed, but in Judges chapter 20, we'll eventually get there, 700 Benjamites, 700 sons of the right hand, you would expect to be right-handed, are described as bound in the right hand, and, and it may be that as children, they bound their right hand to teach them to be left-handed because a warrior, like in tennis, like in baseball, like in boxing, a left-handed athlete has the advantage. And in war, they have the advantage too, particularly given the way that city gates were designed, um, you had an advantage because you could carry your shield on your right hand um, and you could use the sword in your left hand if you were left-handed. Um, when I'm in Europe, um, have noticed, and it's by design, staircases, circular staircases that go up in towers in Europe, they always wind clockwise. The reason they wind clockwise, you go up this way, is because if you're right-handed, the dominant number of people, they have the, the center of the spiral close to them. You can't swing your sword. But if you're on the top, you're defending the tower that you built, you, you've got more room because it's wider out this way. They, def, they, they have built the defenses in towers and in um, ancient cities. They've di- built the defenses to favor right-handers. So if you're a left-hander, you're surprising. You're out of the norm, but you are um, you have a slight advantage. This story itself emphasizes this idea of handedness in an interesting way. Ehud is a, from Benjamin, son of the right hand, but he's restricted in the right hand. Interestingly, and you could have said it a bunch of different ways, the Israelites send tribute by the hand of Ehud. This guy who's left-handed, they send tribute by his hand. Um, when Ehud is assassinating Eglon, he reaches um, with his left hand to his right thigh to pull the blade with which he will do the assassination. 
And then at the end, Moab, Moab is under the hand of Israel. Once Ehud kills Eglon and they win the battle, now Moab is under the hand of Israel. This hand thing is really interesting. So I haven't even gotten to the passage yet, but I'll pause and, and make a point here that I want to land. God can use anyone, even those who are not part of the norm. If you're, if you're out of the norm, you feel like, I don't fit. I live in a right-handed world, and I don't know what that is. I, I live in a logical world, and I'm a creative God can use anyone, even when you don't feel like you fit. You may feel like, ah, I'm not part of the norm. And that may be because the norm is changing to more worldliness, and you feel like you don't fit anymore. God can still use you to be an instrument in his hands to do great things in God's redemptive story. You can be an Ehud. Um, But this raises a question about our story. Last week, I quoted Bruce Waltke, who said the first step to understanding what the Bible says is understanding how the Bible says it. And that raises a question. What is this story about Ehud? He's a judge, and I could just leave it there. Ehud, the judge. Um, He's a warlord, okay? But how is the story presented? Let me just have you listen along, and I want you to, to be asking yourself, What's going on in this story? Um, how is it presented? What, if this were a movie, what kind of movie would this be? Let me just read the story. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. God is still sovereign. God gives Eglon the power. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, Jericho. Uh, The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite, sons of the right hand. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent them on their way, the men who had carried the tribute with him. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet. And all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of the summer palace. Uh, He said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the porch to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took the key and unlocked them. Then they found their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. 
Um, as he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah, when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed uh, no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, and all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. What's going on in this story? <laughs> what kind of genre is this? Um, is Ehud a warlord? Is he a savior? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Um, I don't know if you've ever watched a movie and kind of wondered, what, what was that? The first time I remember this clearly was over 30 years ago. Dawn and I um, were deciding to you know, watch some classic movies. And so we watched uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Anybody seen Breakfast at Tiffany's? What is that movie? I don't get it. Um, it is, I know it's a classic. It's won all kinds of awards. Um, it's a comedy and a romance, but it was just sad. When it was over, I was just sad. And, and I was just like, I, I don't, I don't want to watch this again. I won't recommend this movie. This is just weird. What was that? Um, some other movies are that way. Oh, brother, where art thou? Anybody watch that movie? What, what is this movie? Um, it's a crime comedy drama film written by the Coen brothers. Um, it, it's set in 1937 rural Mississippi during the Great Depression. Here's something you may not have known. Its story is a modern satire loosely based on Homer's epic Greek poem, The Odyssey. Who knew? Oh, brother, where art thou? Is a parody of The Odyssey. Now, some of you may just go, oh, well, absolutely. That's exactly what I thought as it was unfolding. I was just thinking, this is just like the Odyssey. Now, the rest of us were just like the Odyssey. Isn't that some boat or something? Um, what's a classic story? <laughs> really? I mean, it, it is a crime comedy drama film. It was just crazy. I mean, some of the songs still ring in my head, but I mean, it's just a bizarro film. Um, more recently, how about Knives Out? Boy, what, what was that? En enjoyable. Knives Out 2 is, is going to come out uh, this next year. I'll watch it. But, but Knives Out came out in 2019. Rotten Tomatoes lists it as a mystery thriller comedy drama crime. Okay. <laughs> it's all of that. Um, I, I toyed with playing, it would take too long, but two trailers from Knives Out. One of them presents it totally as a comedy. The other one presents it totally as a mystery. What is this? It's all of that. Now, as all films come back, Princess Bride is, is the illustration of this perfectly. Um, it, it is a fantasy adventure comedy, and, and it, um, it probably is, is significant in my mind because it was I, the first date I remember going on with Dawn after we got married. We got married in 86. This is a 1987 film. Kind of, We were married and, and kind of, let's, let's go watch a movie. And we watched this movie and we loved it. It was great. It was fantastic. Um, but it, what is it? It's, it's a fantasy. It's an adventure. It's a comedy. It's a romance. Um, it is a tragedy. Um, it's a political commentary. Boy, it's, it's all of these things all wrapped up in, into one. Um, and um, 
The book, I say this all the time, the book is so much better. Read the book. Um, in the book, you get to know Fezzik the giant. You get to know his mother very well in the book. The book is so much better. Read the book. But the movie's fantastic. Read the book. But it raises another issue that's helpful for me here, and that is Wesley, the Dread Pirate Roberts. Is the Dread Pirate Roberts a good guy or a bad guy? Okay, I mean, he's a pirate. Um, he's done some pirating things, and he shows up. He's kind of, you kind of don't like him. He's an arrogant pirate. But then you realize, oh, he's here to rescue her. But in rescuing, he's going to kill some people. Mm, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Here's my question. Ehud, left-handed warlord? Ehud, left-handed savior. Who is Ehud? In the story of, of what kind of story is this? Now, um, in trying to work through this, let me, let me coax you to my side, because there's a lot of different opinions about what the Ehud story is. But Barry Webb says this, the most striking feature of the style of the story is its satirical quality. Yes, there's, there's satire in it. A left-handed guy from the right-handed tribe. Um, there, there's all of these allusions to other things. And if you're the kind of person who watches, Oh, brother, where art thou? And you're thinking, Oh, the Cohen brothers comment on um, Homer's Odyssey. If you're there, I got things in this story for you too. But if you're not at that level of humor, if you're middle school humor, we got toilets in this story. I mean, this, this is a biblical justification for me to have a toilet on stage. Is this story. They're wondering whether he's delayed because he's going to the bathroom. <laughs> the commentaries are kind of split, though. Dale Ralph Davis, though, who I usually read first, he says this. You shouldn't be surprised, but should understand the pure enjoyment, the devastating humor, abiding satire, and sheer hilarity of this narrative. This, th- that is one trouble of the commentaries. Most all of them are so serious. Of the eight or nine I consulted, not one of them seemed to get the joke. Fortunately, Israel found this story entertaining. I think we should find the story entertaining. Now, I have two commentators who I really trust who argue at length that Ehud is a bad guy and this is tragic. I think Ehud is a good guy and God is just telling a funny story of how his redemptive purposes work. Again, Barry Webb says, The grotesquely comic character of the story makes moral judgments irrelevant. We are clearly meant to identify with the protagonist and enjoy the sheer virtuosity of this performance. Just, just go with it. Enjoy it. Yes, there's a little bit of junior high humor here, but let's just enjoy it. Um, to support that, um, yeah, you can say he assassinates, he's really tricky. Um, it's going to get worse in the book, but... Um, Bob Chisholm says this, despite the fact that there's no mention of Ehud in contrast to Othniel being empowered by the Lord's Spirit, the narrator does link the two together in such a way as to suggest that they are a paradigmatic tandem. They go together at the beginning of the judges to kind of give two good guys. The statement, the Lord raised up a savior, appears in both of these accounts, but is absent in the following accounts of the judges. So these are the only two that that say the Lord raised up a savior. And, and by the way, the presence of the Spirit shows up a couple of other times in the Judges, most notably in Samson, who's the worst of all the Judges, and it doesn't impact his moral character at all. It just empowers him to, to be powerful and destroy a bunch of Philistines. 
So I want us to see this story and open your minds up to say this is a story to be enjoyed and a story for us to embrace and understand how God sometimes humorously redeems his people. But the progression is still there. There's sin. They did evil again. There's oppression by this guy named Eglon and his confederation of forces. They do still cry out to the Lord. God delivers them through Ehud. And there's a period of rest that lasts 80 years. It's going to repeat again. Um, and so here's our, um, here's our Ehud mad lib, okay? It's kind of fill in the blanks. Here's, here's what this one looks like. Israel sinned uh, by doing evil again. It doesn't say what they did, but it does use the again word. Again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord judged them by subjecting them to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Ehud to deliver them. After that, the land rested for 80 years. It's a basic storyline, but it's going to get elaborated on with a lot of details. Mary Evans says this, Whereas the account of Othniel is formal and with little personal information, the story of Ehud is told in an almost comedic style, giving many small details, perhaps designed to amuse, as well as encourage the Israelites who heard it. So I want you to get this in the amusing way it's told, but to be encouraged by it, encouraged that God can use left-handed people who don't seem to fit, who are out of the norm, like most of us feel. To be a part of his story in situations that seem overwhelming and unovercomable, but God can orchestrate the events. If you just courageously use a little faith to step into the opportunities that God gives you. So let's look, first of all, at the arrival of a surprising Savior. Once again, God may use surprising people to redeem his people. God, God may use surprising people. And this is Ehud in this story. But think about all the others through the whole Bible. And think about Jesus himself, <laughs> um, son of peasants, um, never raised an army. In fact, he, he gathered around him 12 people who, when the opposition came, 11 of them left. And that's the one who redeems us from our sins. God can use surprising people. He can use left-handed folks who seem to not fit. They're out of the norm. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And Yahweh strengthened Eglon. Again, Yahweh's in control of this. He's the one who is strengthening Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel. Because, once again, they did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Eglon gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And he went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, that is Jericho. And the Israelites served Eglon. We're going to talk about his name. It means um, little bull. It means calfy. It's kind of a, it's a, the name for a calf, but it's, it's got a diminutive on it. It's got a calfy, okay, on it. The king of Moab for 18 years. Um, notice a couple of things. They did evil. They did evil. It's repeating. They deserve this. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yahweh's in control of it. Yahweh strengthens Eglon, but Eglon is also gathering a coalition with him. Let's look at what's going on here. If you see on the map the, the Dead Sea, southern part of the promised land, the Dead Sea coming um, flowing into it from the north is, is the Jordan River. If you're going to cross over from the plains of Ammon and the plains of Moab, you have to cross the Jordan River 
And the fords where you do that is right near Jericho. So, so controlling Jericho is strategically important. That's why uh, when uh, Joshua led the invasion, the first place they go is Jericho because they need to control it. And it's probably more of a military outpost than it is um, a constantly inhabited city, uh, which may explain Rahab, the prostitute's presence there. Um, it, it, is, it is really important to control. They controlled it. Um, it, it has now been recontrolled by Eglon, who's now using it as this strategic place um, so that he, as the king of Moab, you see Moab is there south um, on the other side of the Jordan River. It is south there by the, uh, the Dead Sea. And he has allied himself with the Ammonites who, are, who have settled just north of him on the other side of the Jordan River. The, the Moabites and the Ammonites go together. I'm going to talk about them more next week. But the Moabites and the Ammonites are both descendants of Lot through his daughters. Um, not good folks. There's a third group that's mentioned, the Amalekites. You, you won't notice a land for the Amalekites because they're Bedouins. Um, they are... Um, they're, they're, they're kind of roaming around. They're just attaching themselves and, and finding a weakness and gaining control in an area. But the Amalekites are, are kind of moving around. And because of that, they have adopted the, the horrible practices of everybody in, in Canaan. And, and it's one of the reasons that the Israelites are told to completely annihilate the Amalekites, which they haven't done because obviously um, Eglon is, is getting his brothers, the Ammonites, and these roving Amalekites together with him. Now, now I, I mentioned that Eglon's name means calf. There's more going on in this passage than just his, that his name means calf. Um, remember last week, Cushan Rathayim, double wicked dude, probably not named that by his mom, double wicked dude, just not what you do. Caffy, this kid, I mean, he, this may be his given name, a plump little baby, and they call him Caffy. But there's more going on here. Some of the other elements of the story all use sacrificial terminology. Um, four times we're going to find that they bring tribute to, the, to, to Eglon. The Israelites are bringing tribute to him. The word for the tribute there, mincha, is one of the sacrifices used in, in Leviticus. There's five sacrifices in Leviticus. Um, there's the sin offering, the trespass offering, the whole burnt offering, the mincha, which is more like our regular offering of okay, we do this because uh, we, we support the Lord, um, the mincha, and then there's the peace offering. Um, this is one of the words for one of the five offerings that is given. Um, so given that there's offering terminology and that we're going to find out Eglon is fattened guy, he, he may be fattened for this sacrifice, um, the word for presenting the tribute is, is a sacrificial term of presenting an offering. And at the end, um, when the Israelites win the battle, um, it doesn't say that they conquered or overwhelmed. It says they sacrificed the Moabites. There's lots of sacrificial terminology. Something seems to be going on here that um, Caffey's plumped up to be given as a sacrifice. Um, There's also this other contrast Barry Webb mentions. The mention of the palms, it's the city of palms, um, it's, it's probably an oasis that was easily defended at Jericho um, that was a, um, a military outpost. But there's also the reference to Eglon's fatness and his cool upper chamber. Um, and it shows the vast difference between the lives of the Moabites and the conquered Israelites. Um, 
he's inside, they're outside. He's cool, they're hot. He's fat, they're barren. He's under the palms and they're in the hills. The boy just, it, it, the reversal is going to be seen here. Eglon is a fat cat sitting on a high hill. And Ehud is going to come and he's going to take care of that. The Israelites cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer. The word deliverer here is a savior. God raises up a savior. I don't think he's negative. I think he's positive. Again, this, this is only used of Othniel. Othniel and Ehud are raised up as saviors by God. He's the son of Gerar, a Benjamite, son of the right hand, um, and he's a left-handed man. He's a left-handed guy. Let me, again, talk about this left-handed. It's not a negative thing. Michelle Knight says, um, twice the Hebrew characterizes left-handed or ambidextrous warriors from Benjamin as some kind of an elite military force. Again, they probably trained this way, and it would have been a surprising, you know, Benjamin, everyone would have heard Benjamin's sons of the right hand, um, and for them to be left-handed warriors, and in, particularly in Judges 20, um, they, can, they can use a sling and hit a, a, a rabbit and never miss with their left hand. They, they're good. They're an elite force. Um, she goes on to say, although some have interpreted his left-handedness as a weakness or even a handicap, the phrase more likely emphasizes Ehud's dexterity skill and skill in battle and his deafness for the task at hand. Um, he's, he's the right guy, even though he doesn't seem to fit the norm. Again, I think that's something we can learn in this passage. We're going to see as well the ramifications of this repeated rebellion. The passage says they again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The last time they did evil, they worshipped the Baals and the Astaroth. They served for 18 years. Now it's now for eight years. Now it's 18 years. Our rebellion is costly. Listen to this. <laughs> and the Israelites sent a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, through him. This tribute is not, um, oh, a, a basket of fruit from um, Tipton Hurst. I mean, that's, that's not what has happened here. They are having to take most of their crops and present them to him. They are feeding the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. This is an oppressive tribute. The Israelites sent a tribute to Eglon, um, king of Moab, Moab, through him. Ehud made for himself a short two-edged sword, a cubit in length. We don't know how. There's, a, there's the Egyptian cubit and the Canaanite cubit. It's, it's somewhere between 9 and 18 inches. It can be hidden on his thigh. That's the point. He fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Obviously, when they frisked him to go in the palace, they just checked his, his left thigh. Then he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, literally well-fed. We'll talk about that in just a second. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent him away, the people who sent away the people who carried the tribute. You see, four times it talks about the tribute. Four times the consequences of your rebellion and God raising up Eglon, four times there are consequences to sin. Your, your sin is going to have consequences. It's going to stack up, and it's going to get very costly. It doesn't mean God leaves you alone, but God is trying to get their attention. For 18 years, they're having to bring the majority of their crops and present them to this guy. Um, now let's talk about who Eglon is. He's, um, he's said to be, the translations have it as very fat. I think in the end, he's probably fat. 
But literally, it says he's well fed. He's, he's a man, lots of food, is what it says. Man, lots of food. Um, it can mean well fed, though. It can mean actually healthy. This is the term that is used to describe Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel. When in the first chapter, they are taken into the king's palace and they don't want to eat the king's food that has been sacrificed to the idols. So they eat only vegetables and drink only water and they're healthy. And and the people are surprised because you are this word. They're well fed. They're looking healthy. Um, So he, he may be fat. I think probably as I read the story, he looks overweight. Um, but it may mean that he's just, he's a well-fed guy. This, so this is either Jabba the Hutt or the Rock. I don't know. It's one or the other. There's, a, there's something going on in the story um, that is pretty significant. If he is the Rock, Robert Chisholm says, on the other hand, if the phrase simply indicates that Eglon was healthy and strong, it highlights Ehud's courage and daring. <laughs> either way, there's, this is a great story. Um, and we're going to see the assassination of this guy. God may use surprising people, and you may feel like a surprising person. You may just go, I don't fit. I'm, I had somebody come up to me after the service and said, thank you for this message. Most of my Christian life, I haven't felt like I fit. And I get it. This was encouraging to me. God, God has been using me. God uses me, even though I feel like I don't fit. You may not be John Piper. You may not be, um, you may think you are, but you're not. Uh, you, you may not be... Um, Matt Chandler, or Beth Moore, or Jen Wilkin, or Jen anybody. I don't know who, who you, you, you don't have to be any of them. You just have to be you. And you may feel like, I don't fit, God can use you. And you may feel like, well, these circumstances, though, they're, they're overwhelming. God can use some surprising events to redeem his people. Let's look at the story. But he turned back from the sculptured stone that were near Gilgal. I could talk about this for a long time. Gilgal, we don't know exactly which Gilgal this is, um, but there's some stones there. It's some popular place. It's, it is where Joshua built a reminder after they crossed the Jordan. So maybe he saw those reminders. Maybe it's got some pagan stuff. Seems like that's going on. But, but he's, he's kind of, um, he gets there and he, he stops and he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, silence. So all those standing in his presence went out. So Ehud has gotten there. He's let all the guys carrying the tribute with him go. He goes back. He says, I have a secret message for you. So all those standing in his presence went out. And Ehud came up to him as he was sitting alone in the cool of the upper room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he got up from his seat. Um, This message is an interesting thing. The Hebrew word for message, davar, is the Hebrew word, um, in 319 and 29 can equally mean a word or a thing. Thus, while Eglon thinks Ehud has a divine message for him, Ehud may be thinking about the thing, the weapon, he has prepared for Eglon on behalf of the Lord. Um, This word davar, if you gave it to me as a Hebrew vocabulary word, I would say davar means word, matter, thing, something. Here's what I think is going on. Ehud stops, sends everybody back. He says, let the king know, I got something for him. He does have something for him. (laughs) But it's kind of like, I stopped at the idols, 
and I got something for him. I got a secret, I got a secret something from God. Now he's thinking maybe his gods, and he's thinking it's a message enough that he lets the guy in, sends everybody out, because he's got something for him from God. And, and I think Ehud is going, I got something for you. <laughs> you don't know what I got. Um, and what he has is the sword, which is a message from God. Um, it cannot be overemphasized that Ehud willingly takes a great personal risk here. He's taken a lot of risk. He sends everybody else away. He comes back. He's already got the, the dagger with him. And maybe that's, they don't frisk him when he's alone because he's already been in the courtroom once to present the tribute. Now he's getting back in, but he's taking all this great personal risk. And his initiative effectively decides the issue. Uh, before he rallies the Israelites and engages the Moabites on the field of battle, because he's going back and he takes out their leader, they're going to win the battle because of his initiative. The story. Then Ehud reached with his left hand for the sword on his right thigh, and he thrust it into his stomach. And the handle also went in after the blade. He made it that way. And the fat closed over the blade because he did not draw back the sword from his stomach. And Something goes out the back that we don't know. I'll say more in it. Something goes out the back. And Ehud went out the, vest, went out the vestibule, and he closed the doors in the upper room and locked them behind him. So that I don't have to say it, I'm going to let Greg Wong say it. There's some debate regarding what comes out in 322 after the blade goes in, as represented by the translations of the NIV. In 1984, the NIV suggests that it's the sword that comes out of Eglon's back. Something come, He stabs him. The blade doesn't, he can't get it back out. Something comes out the back. Um, But in 2011, the translation by the NIV represents the understanding that the obscure Hebrew word is a reference to fecal matter coming out of Eglon as he dies. If the latter is correct, then the accompanying smell would explain why the servants later think the king is relieving himself. Once again, I have biblical justification to have a toilet on the stage because they are wondering... (laughs) <laughs> I think he may be going to the bathroom. I think he's doing his business in there. Uh, I'm not going in there. I'm not going in there either. Let's just give him some time. Uh, they're waiting. Um, they wait a long time. After Ehud has left, his servants returned. When they saw that the doors of the upper room were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the cool of the inner room. And they waited so long they became embarrassed because he did not open the doors for the upper room. So they took the key and opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying on the ground, dead. (laughs) Meanwhile, while they waited and waited, Ehud had escaped while they delayed. He passed by the sculptured stone and escaped to Syrah. He goes past the sculptured stone. Now he's up in the hill country, and he's going to gather his army. And this is the overthrow of this superior enemy. Um, God can... Reverse the fortunes of those with courageous faith. He uses, he uses people who sometimes feel like they don't fit. And that may be you. In situations where you feel like there's no way to get out of this. But if you are courageous in your faith, God can turn the tide. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down from the hill country with him leading him. They're gathering back by the river. And he said to them, follow after me. Yahweh has given Moab, uh, your enemy, into your hands. So they went down after him and they captured the fords of the Jordan toward Moab. And they did not allow anyone to cross over. 
And they struck Moab at that time, about 10,000 men, all strong and able men. No one escaped. And Moab was subdued on, the day, uh, on that day under the hand of Israel. And the land rested 80 years. God turns it around. He turns it around quickly. Using an unexpected person in an unexpected circumstance with some courageous faith in a funny way to redeem his people. I'm going to say just a moment, because this is going to come up again and again in the book of Judges. It's already come up one other time. This word for a thousand, they, can, they killed 10,000 men. Um, the word elef, the plural elephim, the word elef, is a, is, it can mean a thousand. It really, sometimes it literally does mean a thousand. Um, but but it's, it seems to have some other military context that means something like a garrison or a squad or a group or a detachment, something like that. And, and that fits because sometimes 10,000 men, they killed 10,000 men, doesn't seem to fit. So either this is some kind of military word that means 10 squads. They killed 10 squads. By the way, how many are in a squad? Anyone know? I don't know how many is in a squad. This word kind of means 9 to 20 guys, 10, 10 groups, 10 detachments. It, it seems like it may mean that. Um, it probably doesn't mean they killed 10,000, although we don't really know what to do with the word. This also may, I can illustrate this particularly after yesterday. Um, the Razorbacks beat by a bazillion points. We creamed them. We smashed them. We beat them by a hundred. No, you didn't. You hung on and won by 10. But if you're the winners, you get to say, we killed 10,000 men. Now, I, I'm not sure that's the way to solve this, that this is just the victors, you know, you know they brag, we brag. Um, you, know, we, you know, if some Texas A&M guy says, we beat you 20 years in a row. No, you didn't. You beat us nine. But if he says 20, then I'm going to say, we smashed you guys yesterday. We annihilated you guys yesterday. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe there's 10,000. Maybe it's 10 detachments, 10 squads. I'm not sure. Here's what I am sure of. By faith, we can advance the purposes of God. When we courageously seize opportunities to do great things for him, in spite of seemingly overwhelming odds, in spite of the fact that you feel like you don't fit, you may feel like, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not like everybody else. I'm not the, you know, and you put the person on the pedestal you want. I'm not like them. Ehud felt that way. God can use the lefties. And he can use the lefties in weird situations, alone in the throne room, if you'll courageously step forward to do what God is asking you to do. Ken Way says, on a human level, the Ehud story depicts heroic and daring actions of an ambidextrous deliverer, but on the divine level, it is revealed that there's no deliverance here except for that arranged and executed by the Lord. God can use you. Step forward. Step into it. But remember, he's the one who's doing this. Trust him. So some next steps. Again, I'm going to try to put this in some encouraging ways. Here's the truth. God uses surprising people and events to accomplish his redemption. Surprising left-handed people with an assassination in a cool upper room and an escape because people think a guy's going to the bathroom. God can use surprising people and surprising events to accomplish his redemption. And maybe you're in the middle of all that. Maybe God's calling you to that. 
a warning here. Repeated rebellion is always going to be costly. There's going to be tribute to pay. Four times it's said, tribute, tribute, tribute. And then here's my challenge for you. Trust God regardless of your supposed limitations or the odds against you. No matter what you may think your limitations are, no matter how you think the odds are stacked against you, trust God in the middle of what he's calling you to do in his great big redemptive story. Father, we thank you that your word is encouraging. Sometimes it's funny. It engages us with real stories of real people, and it addresses real issues that we have in our life when we don't feel like maybe we're the right person. But you're the right God. Uh, Remind us again and again that we can trust you. That you're arranging our own redemption right now. And with courageous faith, we can step forward into what you ask us to step into. Keep us humble, but keep us confident. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.